This right, conference will now be recorded. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to our latest uh, webinar. And this is on judicial writing. We do have uh, two terrific presenters for us today. Uh, Judge Lyle Riggs is the Justice of the Peace for the Western Pinal Justice Court. That's formerly Maricopa Stanfield, if you're wondering where that is. And Judge uh, Gerald Williams from North Valley Justice Court. I do have both of their bios in your materials. Uh, your materials also have the COJET certificate on the last page. Uh, so um, you, you can go ahead and present that. Uh, they are going to be referring to the materials, so I'm going to scroll it on the screen. And also, uh, you do have that. The materials are available in Hightail, uh, so you can follow along uh, with your own printed versions as well. Uh, and I do really want to thank uh, Lyle and Gerald uh, for presenting for us today, uh, because this is one class that, that I absolutely could not teach. Uh, and, and why is that, uh, Judge Williams? Because you think writing long opinions is a generally bad idea. I have two pieces of advice for this session. One, rule on the record so you don't have to do a writing. And two, if you are going to do a writing, then keep in mind an appellate court uses different standards of review for findings of fact and conclusions of law. Uh, conclusions of law are reviewed de novo, uh, whereas there is more deference given to the court as a fact finder. So to the extent that you can fudge putting more stuff in the findings of fact and conclusions of law, I would advise you do that. And other than that, that, that would be the extent of my contribution to the judicial writing class. Uh, so at this point, I will turn it over to, to the two presenters who do enjoy writing uh, judicial op opinions, uh, Judges Williams and Riggs. Thank you. I think uh, Judge Riggs has some introductory comments, and then I'll, I'll go, and then we'll trade off after that. Thank you. So I... Well, I understand what Charlie is saying, and there's certainly validity to that, and I certainly take that into consideration in certain cases. I just thought I'd take a moment and just explain why I do write, uh, and, and a couple, three different, uh, three reasons or so that I use in making that decision. Uh, we deal with so many self-represented or unrepresented litigants that I think writing sometimes uh, is a way to educate and help people understand what their rights are and help them understand the law. While most of us hope they never come back to our courts after their first visit, sometimes they do. And I hope that when they come back, they're a little better educated through this process. And so that's one of the reasons I, I choose to write is to help explain. Another one that I, another reason I choose to write is that for me, it's part of a deliberative process. And even in a non-jury trial, I don't do it often, but if it's a pretty contested uh, criminal trial, then I kind of take the time to deliberate and think on it and go through a writing process. And it just helps me think through the issues and, and, and resolve it that way. I think it also gives, it helps the parties to understand that they were heard and that they're, what they presented in their case matters. So I do it that way as part of a deliberation. 
and then lastly it is to create a record and the, and the the three examples that i that i've included and we'll go through those a little bit uh in detail uh later on but it was some of that is just so the court of a, on a reviewing court will understand why i did what i did and charlie's absolutely right judge adonet is absolutely right if you're going to spend the time you got to make sure the findings of fact are solid that's where you the, the deference will be shown on the conclusions of law, uh, the nice thing about that is you can be wrong. Uh, you can reach the right reason for, or the right conclusion for the wrong reason, and they, you still may end up being affirmed on appeal. But the findings of fact and 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 setting up your the factual decisions that you made that's really key to writing at a trial level. So I thought I would just share that, and if anybody had any questions, be happy to answer those. Thank you. Um, for those that are, are watching this either now or uh, on a delay in YouTube, um, you can see I'm, I'm wearing an orange tie, and that's, that's significant because about five minutes before this presentation started, um, it became official that the school where I went to law school decided to throw a or lob a nuclear weapon essentially at the school where I went undergrad. Um, and University of Oklahoma and University of Texas are joining the Southeast Conference, making their annual television payout about 60 million a year, making Oklahoma State, where I went undergrad, that will drop ours down to about 10 million a year, uh, rendering <laughs> us not competitive any longer uh, as a major college football player. And we'll, we'll be a group of five level Competitor, unless we can find a life raft, the life raft would be in the Pac-12. Um, I have some general thoughts on how people from USC, Cal Berkeley, Stanford, and UCLA might want to uh, form a partnership with Oklahoma. Um, I, I don't think <laughs> they naturally look toward Oklahoma to form partnerships, but hope springs eternal. So if any of you have any influence with the Pac-12 uh, organizations and you'd like to throw what's left of the Big 12 a life raft, um, we'd appreciate it. But in terms of, uh, as Justice Court judges, we hear too many cases um, to, to do that many written opinions. And as a pro tem judge, it's very difficult to do a written opinion uh, because you're only there for a day usually. And the, the court will get cranky if you say, well, I'm going to take it home and email it to you later, they they probably won't like that response. Um, and if you do that a bunch and it, it maybe takes a week for you to get back to them, I, I don't know that you're going to be asked as a pro, asked back as a pro tem judge very often. So uh, it, it's on a, on a landlord tenant case, for instance, it, it's very easy to do findings of fact and conclusions of law on on the record verbally. I, I do that at the end of every landlord-tenant uh, trial, eviction trial, you just say, I am prepared to make findings of fact and conclusions of law. One, I find there's a landlord-tenant relationship between the parties. Two, I find the tenant received a, a, a timely and accurate five-day notice. Three, I find the landlord established that the tenant did not pay rent for June and July. And four, therefore, I find the landlord's title to possession as well as a money judgment and the amount requested and and that's all you have to say i mean and, and that 
and that works. Um, and that works in other trials as well. But sometimes um, I like to write things up, especially if I know one of the parties will be angry with me. And, and, and you can tell during a trial, um, especially a lengthy trial, if one of the parties is going to be angry. Now, right now where we're doing everything remotely, that's not as big a deal. But if we get back to having people in the courtroom again, um, there was an old uh, rule from uh, a JP named John Orr that said, if, if someone's going to be mad at your ruling, let them be mad in their living room when they open their mail. You know, you don't want them to be mad in the courtroom. So just politely say you're going to take them under advisement, write something up, and then they can be angry in their living room rather than angry in your courtroom. The other thing is it lets parties know that you care about the case. Uh, a lot of these people, the, the most important thing they've got going on in the, their life right now might be their justice court case. And they spent maybe 20 hours for it and on it. And to get a, a form back in the mail that just has boxes checked on a judgment form, if they can't figure out how you got at those numbers, it's it's going to be very, very frustrating for them, and they're going, going to feel like they didn't get their day in court. Um, I started off on the outline with talking about a couple common logical fallacies, just because I, I think it's a big deal, and I, I, it, it's important that we don't fall for them or or really discuss them uh, in a in a written opinion. The, the, the biggest one is some kind of personal attack or ad hominem uh, argument. Most of us, when we do orders of protection, even though we've read the the petition, when someone's coming in to, get, to seek an order of protection, we're going to say, well, tell me what happened in your own words. And invariably, the first couple of sentences will be what a jerk the defendant is. It'll be, you know, how they're an alcoholic or a substance abuser or or something like that. And then you, you politely listen for a while and what I say usually is, well, I can't grant an order of protection against someone because they're a bad person. Can you tell me what they did? Um, and that, and that's kind of a, a good principle to keep in, in mind when you're doing written opinions as well. Don't focus on, on stuff that's collateral. Focus on, on the main thing. I think many people are familiar with the acronym IRAC, which is the Roman numeral number two there. And it just stands for issue, rule, application, conclusion. And if um, if you focus your uh, analysis, whether it's verbal or in writing, whether it's a, a short two-paragraph opinion, um, whether you're doing that format in one paragraph or you're doing it over a long period of time uh, or, or in a, in, over a couple pages, that that format always works. It will keep you from forgetting to discuss anything, and it will it will always provide a, a sound format for you to analyze something. So, and it doesn't have to be long. The, the first example there, um, it just says, Al Bohr has been charged with burglary. That common law burglary required proof that the defendant was guilty of breaking and entering of a dwelling at nighttime with the intent to commit a felony. In this case, Mr. Bohr went into a shed in the afternoon and took a bicycle. His actions do not amount to burglary because no one was living in the shed and because he took a bicycle in the afternoon. Consequently, while 
Mr. Bohr may be guilty of some other crimes, he cannot be convicted of burglary. That's a, a real example, you know, what's the issue? Well, he's, he's charged with burglary. What's the rule? What's the principle of the law? Well, at common law, the rule is this. Um, so you apply that rule to the facts. In this case, he went into a shed in the afternoon, so that's not burglary. Um, and then you reach a conclusion, while he may be guilty of something, he can't be guilty of burglary. And that's just uh, an easy way to do that. When I, I taught this class a couple years ago, we were all in a classroom and it was easier to, to write. Um, doing it remotely, it's gonna be a little awkward and almost comical to see if anyone's willing to, to stop and, and try to write something right now. And if they are, whether they'd be willing to share it with anybody. But that's, that's what I actually envisioned happening um, I was going to take the first exercise and then Judge Riggs can take the second one. But the, and if you would, if you don't want to write it, if you would just talk through it, um, that works too. But, the, uh, I, I, well, Judge, I, I think we can stop for five minutes, have people write it, and then take volunteers, okay. or, or, or we will call on people. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I saw some of the coming <laughs> in. Um, some of you are pretty sly just doing one initial, you know, not, not even letting us know what your first and last name are. Uh, but uh, the, the fact pattern um, is, is one we've all seen before. Um, it's an action, it's a trial, it's an action involving a motor vehicle accident. The plaintiff testified that the defendant hit her vehicle as she was making a left turn from an intersection. The defendant testified that she'd entered the intersection while the traffic light was green, but then it turned yellow and then red. Uh, she testified that she could not complete the turn sooner because there was a never a gap in the traffic that allowed her to do so. As she was completing her turn, the plaintiff ran a red light and proceeded into the intersection. Um, negligence, and just an easy definition of negligence, is the failure to act as a reasonable person would have in the same or similar circumstances. On this, um, I'm less concerned with whether or not you get a quote right answer as a as opposed to getting something where you say this is the this is the issue this is the rule this is how I'm applying the rule to the facts and then uh, this was my conclusion so whether you use the the form that's in the handout or whether you use uh, a scrap of paper. Or, or whatever, or just type something in front of you. Um, I'll, I'll follow Charles's uh, request. We'll, we'll go off uh, the recording record anyway for a few moments, and uh, give people a chance to, to write something down, and then see if anyone's brave enough to share it uh, with everybody else. All right, we'll go off the record for five minutes. This conference will now be recorded. Okay, we're back on the record, and we do have a couple of volunteers. Uh, we will start with Monica. All right, can you hear me? My mic is on. Yep, so following Iraq, I would simply write, the issue is who is responsible for the damage to plaintiff's vehicle. Negligence is the failure to act as a reasonable person would. 
have in same or similar circumstances. Plaintiff read a red light, ran a red light and hit defendant. A reasonable person would not have run the red light and would have stopped. Therefore, plaintiff is at fault and the action is dismissed. All right, Michael. Sorry. Um, yes. Uh, so, I mean, mine is, is certainly going to be almost uh, identical. The issue is, was the defendant negligent and liable to plaintiff? The rule is negligence is the failure to act as a reasonable person in the same or similar circumstances. Application here is a reasonable person would come to a stop when approaching an intersection with a red light illuminated. The defendant did not stop when facing a red light and entered the intersection, striking the plaintiff's vehicle. The conclusion is the defendant was negligent because they failed to stop at a red light and struck the plaintiff's vehicle. All right, Judge Williams, Judge Riggs, any comments? Any any other volunteers? Well, I don't have anything else to add to this example. So. Have we lost Judge Williams? I don't see him on the recording at this point. Well, let me pick, yeah, let me pick up from here and maybe Judge Williams will come back. So I, I just wanted to point out a slightly different style to Iraq. Um, and certainly if you're at the beginning stages of judicial writing, I certainly encourage you to follow IRAC and be very deliberative about it. I think it's very helpful. And so if you have the writing samples that we submitted, I would invite you to go to the second sample, which is the motion to dismiss denied. And if we can get to page three of that, All right, and I wanted to go to the, the section that's B, motion to suppress breath test results. So in this case, the defendant had filed a, a motion to suppress and had raised two issues. One issue that there was not probable cause to justify the arrest of the driver. If there's not probable cause, then the breath test has to be suppressed. And the second was, and at this point, the law was a little unclear, and so they had raised the issue of whether the defendant had voluntarily consented to the breath test. And so if you look at this section, I'm not as, I wasn't as deliberative as Judge uh, Williams was about Iraq, but it's still there. So if you look at the first paragraph, the issue there is, was there probable cause? And if I were to write the rule out, I'd write out what a definition of probable cause is, and then I'm into the analysis. And so one of the things I want to pick up, and we'll go back to the example in a moment and, and look at writing findings of fact, but if you go through my analysis, at this point, everything that I state as a fact, I previously listed as a finding of fact and explained why I found that as a finding of fact. And so that's the connection of Iraq where uh, I, I've separated, I have the findings of fact listed separately, and then I combine them in my analysis to complete that. 
And then at the bottom of that section B is my conclusion that there was probable cause, so the breath test is admissible. As to the other issue as to whether there was voluntary consent, in this case, I used a reference to a case law that uh, answered that question. And this one, uh, you know, with regard to breath tests, that's not the rule. And so I explained that and then again reached the conclusion that based on that, the breath test was admissible. So Judge Adonetto, if we can go back to then the example, the second example we have there. All right, so on, on this one, we're going to invite you to do is make a listing of findings of fact. Uh, you know, this is an order of protection, and there's always going to be uh, discrepancies as to what happened. Uh, one of the hints that's given there on findings of fact, and I think it's an incredibly important hack in, in hint, is if there's questions of credibility, make it explicit as to which witness you believe. And, and even explain why. We, as trial judges, we are given great deference on credibility issues. I think in, in, amongst all the different cases I've read over many years, I've only seen one example where a judge was actually reversed on credibility. And reading that opinion, it was obvious the judge had a bias towards a particular witness. Uh, that witness was not really credible, but the judge made the finding anyway and got reversed on appeal, but that's rare. More often than not, if, if you make a credibility decision, it's going to be shown deference on appeal, and that can really help on the review. And so as the process I go through as I'm getting ready to make findings of facts actually starts before the hearing, and it's preparing. And I make an effort to go through, and I start the IRAC process even before the hearing, and I think of what issues need to be resolved over the course of that hearing. And I'll even write them out sometimes. And then I identify the rules that I think are going to resolve that. So now I've got the issues and the rules that are important. Back to that motion to suppress, and I don't want to go back to it. In that case, you know, I had two attorneys. One had written the motion to suppress, and the state had filed a response. So I had the issues and the rules in front of me. Sometimes that's not the case. You have to go figure those out yourself and be prepared. I'll usually write them out, have them on a pad of paper so that as I'm listening to the hearing or the trial, I'm making notes then as to what issues, what facts are, are most relevant, most important to the ultimate decision that I'm going to make. So I think preparation is really important uh, in identifying the issue and the rules that you're going to use to resolve the case. Then when I get into the hearing, I take copious notes. I'm, I'm writing. Sometimes I'll even take my iPad in there and just type the notes as I'm going. Um, and I, I will put my impressions down. I'll make sure that I've noted which exhibits are admitted. Uh, you know, I, it's not unusual for me after a long trial to have pages and pages of notes that I have taken that help me then to go back and review the case. Once I've reached that point, then I go through a process where I'll review my notes, I review the issues uh, that I identified, I reviewed the rules, and I start the process. I'll, I'll write an initial draft of what I think the relevant facts are, review them, 
then I'll go back and I'll either review statutes or rules or case law that I think is applicable to that particular case. I may realize that there was some information that was presented, evidence that was presented that I didn't put in the findings of facts, so I'll adjust those and, and others that I'll remove and, until I've got what I consider a pretty good uh, set of findings of fact, and then I move on to the analysis and the conclusions. One thing I will offer as a suggestion, having heard other uh, reviewing judges, whether it's Superior Court or Court of Appeals, be careful with using dates. Sometimes we have, uh, we, we rely on them too much. You know, something happened on this date at this time. Only use dates and times if it's actually relevant to the ultimate decision that you're gonna make. Otherwise, it's just story, and it, it just takes longer to read and review those, and it's not really relevant. So I think at this point, we can take another pause, and we've got the, the set, second writing exercise of the order protection and see what findings of fact, you, you know, just two or three that you might write out that, that would help you then make the decision using the rule and then what conclusions you might make. And let's, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and take a few minutes here. Let, and let's uh, plan to have a couple of volunteers uh, and, and perhaps different volunteers this time around. So um, we'll go off the record and, and give you a few minutes on this. This conference will now be recorded. Okay, we're back on the record and we do have some volunteers. Uh, so we'll take Sonia first. Sonia? Okay. Uh, is defendant guilty of interfering with judicial proceedings? A person commits interfering with judicial proceedings by knowing when he knowingly disobeys a lawful court order. Defendant sent three text messages to his ex-wife well, I, I would throw in that uh, defendant was served with an order of protection stating that he could only contact his ex-wife by text message and could do so no more than three times a day. Defendant set, sent three text messages to his ex-wife to which he did not receive any response because defendant did not know whether his ex-wife would be able to pick up their son after school, that he sent a fourth text message to which wife responded, yes, I will pick him up and I've got you. Um, based on evidence presented, the court finds that defendant did not knowingly disobey the lawful court order and the court concludes that de the defendant is not guilty of interfering with judicial proceedings. All right, uh, Steve Goodell. Um, I had the... Uh, issue is whether the defendant violated a lawful court order. The um, rule is that a person commits interfering with judicial proceedings when he knowingly disobeys a lawful court order. Um, in this case, the defendant sent three texts to his wife, none of which were responded to, period. On the fourth text, the wife responded, noting uh, that, open quote, I've got you, close quote, period. Um, there was evidence that the, by preponderance of the evidence, that the wife intentionally failed to respond to the first three 
text. I therefore find that the defendant did not intentionally, knowingly disobey a lawful court order. I clean that up a bit, but try and just keep it as brief as possible. And Judge Reagan? Okay, did the fourth text message constitute a violation of the order to limit contact to three messages per day? The rule is that the defendant must follow the allowable number of uh, messages in, uh, following the, um, excuse me, the number of messages is absolute and that exceeding that number is a violation of the court order. The order does not state that any message requires a response by the uh, plaintiff. In conclusion, it, it is that the fourth message constitutes a violation of the order and is a, um, and, and upon uh, the preponderance of the evidence, court finds that the defendant is guilty of interfering with judicial proceedings. And this, this was actually a criminal case that I had a couple of years ago, and I was very frustrated by it because it was uh, there's no sometimes you you hear something about jury nullification where the the prosecution, <laughs> but the jury finds them not guilty anyway because the jury views the whole thing as being stupid or, or unjust or something. There's really not uh, any such thing as judge nullification. You can't, you, you can't say, I think this case is stupid, so I'm going to find him not guilty. Um, so I, uh, I found the defendant guilty, even though he was uh, arguably baited uh, to some extent into violating the, the order. So you can talk about, you can give the defendant, you know, advice on uh, appellate rights and set aside and um, cut slack during sentencing or whatever. But there, there are surprising, at least there used to be a surprising number of uh, cases in Maricopa County where the, the communication had degenerated to the point where there were actually family court orders and orders of protection out there that limited the amount of text messages uh, between uh, the parties. And when they have children in common, that's, that's an issue. Anyway, I, I, I found that to be a, a problematic case ethically. Um, and I, I still remember it. And, as a writing sample here. On the next thing, well, before write, we move on, yeah. To, to move on. So if I, what I heard is I heard four judges review this, and I think we had an even split. Two judges found the defendant not guilty. Two judges found the defendant guilty, and I, I think this really helps illustrate how important those findings you make because I think the key issue here is was it a knowing? Did he knowingly disobey? And you know, we don't have all of, you know, there's obviously missing information. This is just a summary, you know, but things might change if 
I know that when I text my, for example, when I text my wife, I can actually see on my phone that she's reading the text message. So I know she got it. There's other people that I text and I don't get that. So if something like that had come out, you know, the defendant may have been able to say, I didn't see that this person read the text message. So I assume they didn't respond or didn't get it. Now you're, so was it a knowing violation? And I think that's where we had four judges look at it and had an even split. I think that becomes really what we're getting at. Those findings that you make, whether you make them on the record or you take the time to write them become really key to whether you're going to be, uh, if there is an appeal, whether you'll survive that appeal. Very, very good point. The, one of the things that I, I started doing after I went to uh, a class at the National Judicial College in Reno, and that class was called decision-making, um, but it had a judicial writing component. Um, and this, some examples of this are on the, the top of the next page, um, writing an opinion after a trial or a hearing. I like to start the written opinion by asking the, the, the key question then just answering it. Um, this serves a couple functions. Um, one, it lets the parties immediately know the outcome of the case without reading the entire opinion. If it's more than a page or so, um, it might be kind of cumbersome to read, but it, it lets them know in the first paragraph whether they their side prevailed or not. The other thing is it does the same thing for your court staff. You know, your, your, your court staff may not be that interested in reading long opinions. So the, the whole uh, issue, if you can get it in, in, one, in one paragraph, because you may get a court clerk who had nothing to do with the case, gets a phone call on it, and they say, what happened? He or she's not going to say, well, wait, let me put you on hold while I read the opinion. No, no one's going to want to do that. But if, if you've got the, the gist of the opinion in the first paragraph, then that helps a lot. The other thing that helps is if you have to interact with this case later uh, down the road after uh, for some kind of post-trial matter, whether it's a, a, a motion to set aside a criminal conviction or a garnishment hearing or whatever, you're not going to want to read your, your two-page opinion later either because you may not remember it. So if you put everything in the first paragraph, then you're like, oh, okay, that's what happened. And so I, I did three examples there. I'll do, uh, I'll go over the first two just so uh, the people that are on the phone or maybe the people that are listening to this a podcast later will, will know what I'm talking about. And note that they don't have any fancy words in them. There's not anything special about them. Charles, did you want to say something? Well, we did have a question uh, still about the OP one. And the oh. question was, is an order limiting the text messages to free a lawful order? Uh, so at this point, I'll put in a plug for our session that we did a couple weeks ago with Commissioner Morton. Uh, does, does the order of protection pass the flashlight test? And so seemingly, uh, you know, an officer reading it at three in the morning could put a flashlight on the order and say, aha, uh -huh, you, you only get three text messages. 
and uh, this one was the fourth, so we got you. Um, or is it a little deeper than that? Like what happens if you send one text message that is so long that the phone company breaks it up into four text messages? Uh, so that an uh, order of protection that limits it to three text messages might not pass the flashlight test and might not be enforceable. So that, that was just my opinion on the question that was presented. And if you're going to go down that road, if that's where you really think the issue is, then you need to go through the same process. You would you would find the rule, then you would find the analysis and draw your conclusion that the order wasn't lawful to begin with. Yeah. And, and before Judge Williams gets into his examples, I would just I, reiterate and back up what he's saying. I think that first sentence you know, based on the evidence presented, the motion is denied, the defendant is guilty, uh, because as, even as practitioners, that's what you want to know first. And after you know what the conclusion is, then you're interested in reading and figuring out why, but making it very clear what your conclusion is right at the top, make it easy to find is helpful at so many levels. Most of the judges or most of the attorneys that I knew that do appellate work when they get an appellate opinion in, they read the last paragraph first because <laughs> it's going to say remanded or, you know, affirmed, and then they'll go back and figure out why or what happened. But they want the result. They, they want to know. I mean, if, if, if you want to know how the the case came out, you want to know if if you won or lost, and so it can be something as simple as the issue in this case is whether the defendant failed to consent to the medical care which resulted in his blood being drawn. The court finds that the defendant consented to the medical care he received and it was therefore voluntary. Consequently, the defendant's motion to suppress slash dismiss is denied. Again, nothing really fancy there, um, but it lets the reader know exactly what happened. Um, the next one is along the same vein. Uh, the issue in this case is whether the police officer had sufficient information that would constitutionally allow him to initially detain the defendant. The defendant is not contending whether there was sufficient probable cause for the eventual arrest. Instead, the defendant is contending that there was not a valid basis for the traffic stop. This court concludes that there was, and therefore the evidence obtained after the stop is therefore admissible. Again, no no fancy words, no big elaborate analysis necessary, but it, it tells everyone exactly what's going on and why. Um, and then sometimes the, the next one, you just have to do a list, which is uh, the plaintiff alleged A, B, C, and D, um, decided not to pursue D, the court found against the plaintiff on A, B, C, and D. I mean, that's not really exciting flowery language, um, there's no rhetorical flourish there or anything, but it, it, it tells both sides exactly what's going on. Um, there's some examples of what I thought were, were good opening beginnings of, uh, of court cases. Oh, we've got some appellate stuff coming up now. I'm sorry, since, since you mentioned that, I do have to bring this up. <clears throat> Okay. This is, we talked about this in our hearing officer roundtable and perhaps the uh, pro tem roundtable as well. But this is 
not yet Chief Justice Brutonell, the second sentence of, of an opinion on when does the uh, uh, when when does the statute of limitations in credit card cases start to uh, start to run right there in the second sentence. Although the credit card agreement gave the creditor the option of declaring the debt immediately due and payable upon default. We hold that even if the option was not exercised, the cause of action to collect the entire debt accrued as of the date of Santos's first uncured missed payment. Boom, you don't even have to read the rest of the opinion. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's really uh, well written. Um, and, and in terms of being, per I'm sorry, in terms of being persuasive, the other thing that that does is it frames the reader's point of view. They're now reading the entire opinion from the point of view, does, does the rest of the analysis support that? So I think that also helps in making your decision persuasive. I also found um, some good examples of intro type paragraphs in, in dissenting opinions that are on the next page. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll let people try to guess who, who wrote these if you don't already know. Um, the first one was written by uh, a justice who's currently on the Arizona Supreme Court. It says uh, it was an entrapment case. Um, and it says in the meantime, and this was a, a, from, again from a dissenting opinion, so this justice lost. Um, but he said, in the meantime, Mr. Gray has been sentenced to over nine years in jail for accepting an undercover officer's invitation to obtain $20 worth of crack for a fee of $10. Because he was not allowed to present an entrapment defense without surrendering fundamental rights, we will never know whether Gray was a cunning drug courier awaiting precisely such an opportunity or whether he was simply waiting for a bus. I just think that, I, I like that. I, I, um, I, I, I wish I wrote that well. Um, I just think it, it, it's really well written. Um, he's done more than one solo dissent, but uh, can anyone guess which justice wrote this? No, not recently retired. Good guess. <laughs> <laughs> not, not currently running for attorney general, no. No, it was Clint Bullock. It was Bullock, yeah. Kelsey, you know, Kelsey probably, um, I, I don't think you were involved with the case, but um, you're obviously involved with criminal defense issues. Um, I only remember the case uh, because it was actually argued at a high school in Surprise, and I went over to watch the oral argument on it. And the, the issue was whether or not you have to essentially admit to the elements of the offense in order to raise an entrapment defense. And this person wanted to argue in the alternative and say, I didn't do it, but if I did do it, I was entrapped. And uh, the Supreme Court didn't buy that argument. The, the next one that I thought was especially well-written, um, and this is a good example of what sometimes people call the school to the prison pipeline, but it says, if a seventh grader starts trading fake burps for laughs in gym class, what's a teacher to do? Order extra laps, detention, a trip to the principal's office? Maybe, but then again, maybe that's too old school. Maybe today you call a police officer. 
and maybe today the officer decides that instead of just escorting the now compliant 13 year old to the principal's office an arrest would be a better idea and so out come the handcuffs and off the child goes to juvenile detention my colleagues suggest that the law permits exactly this option and they offer 94 pages explaining why they think that's so respectfully i remain unpersuaded i, I just i thought that was was worded very very well you know exactly um it, it uses very very simple language almost mark twain type uh conversation or tone uh can anyone guess who wrote that and i'll i'll give a hint this justice is no longer on the 10th circuit um this justice is or this 10th circuit judge is now on the the u.s supreme court No takers. Okay. It's uh, Justice Gorsuch um, wrote that when he was on the 10th Circuit. At this point, just because legal um, and judicial writings not expect exactly a riveting, fun, entertaining topic, um, I found a, a video with uh, with Jimmy Kimmel does, yeah, there it is. Jimmy Kimmel does uh, contracts. Uh, he does a, he asks people on the street to, to sign a waiver for television uh, rights and uh, they're willing to waive um, and consent to all kinds of truly bizarre things just to be on television. Um, this may be not an easy way to play it, but if we just want to take a break and everyone can click on the, the YouTube video and watch it on their own, then we'll go back to recording again. But I think it's worth reading, worth watching in part because it's funny and in part because it gives a good example of how people don't really pay attention to legal language very well. And, and, and I do apologize. I, I couldn't figure out how to play it as part of the presentation. Plus, YouTube might not then let me upload it if it was a copyright violation. So we will stop recording. The clip's about five and a half minutes, so we'll come back in eight minutes at 4.32. This conference will now be recorded. All right, we're uh, going to start up again. For those of you who are watching, the include the link in the materials and for those of you who are listening as a podcast I'll include the link in the show notes and we will turn it over to Judge Riggs. All right a couple more things on findings of fact um, and I it's a very unusual situation that it came up in but it proved very useful and it can be useful in other situations. So the first two exemplars that I included uh, are actually out of the same case. So the evidentiary hearing occurred in February. I wrote the, the first decision and denied the motions to suppress and motion to dismiss and issued that in March. Well, August, so almost six months later, another very critical piece of evidence came to light that changed my decision. But because I, and, and because I had written those earlier findings of fact, I was able to just pick up where I had left off, make a few additional findings of fact, and 
and reconsider the, the original decision and made a different decision and actually granted the motion to dismiss. Not only did I grant that motion to dismiss, but I included findings of fact that I felt justified dismissing it with prejudice. For trial judges to dismiss a case pre-trial with prejudice is a bit tricky. It's not favored and you that's one you can lose on appeal. So be very careful if you're going to make that decision. When this case, and it did get up, the state appealed my decision, took it up to the Superior Court in Pinal County. When the reviewing court issued their opinion and affirmed the decision that I had made, the reviewing court's decision was almost verbatim the things I had written with one little variation in that, in my opinion, reading that, the reviewing judge was a little uncertain and a little unclear about this dismissal with prejudice and seemed to imply that had she been the trial judge, she might not have dismissed it with prejudice. But she found that I did not abuse my discretion in making that decision, that I had acted within what the law allowed. And so she affirmed the decision. And I think that's the result of the, the, the findings of fact that I made. So findings of fact can help you in the decision you're making today. Uh, the case may come back to you several months or a year later, and if you make good findings of fact, it'll help you remember what you did. So I wanted to leave off there unless there's any questions about finding of facts, and I just want to spend a little time kind of finish up my part of it on some stylistic and, and some thoughts on how to uh, write a decision. All right, I'm not seeing any questions, so let me move on to the next part. So the first two examples, if you look at those, you'll see that I did include legal citations. And Judge Williams and some of his examples also include, included legal citations. I know that that sometimes can be daunting, the idea of how do I include that? What do I include? Well, here's a tip at least for trial judges, we don't have to include legal citations. I think it's a good idea, um, but it's not a requirement um, because ultimately it's gonna go up on review and those things will uh, be looked at. So I would take you to the third example that I, that I submitted in this case, which was actually a, an, an involved an injunction against harassment hearing. And if you look at that one, I don't include any legal citations. I didn't cite to a rule. I didn't cite to a case or even a statute. But if you read it, you will definitely see language in there that comes right out of different cases, different statutes, and different rules. In particular, if you've taken any kind of class on protective orders, there's almost always a reference to the case of LaFerro versus Cahill. And that was uh, a, the case that I was really having to deal with in this. In that case, the Court of Appeals had held that the injunction against harassment in the Cahill case was overly broad because it impacted somebody's political speech. I am dealing with a candidate for a public office and somebody who's involved in monitoring those candidates. So this was very much a, a political issue. And so the findings of fact that I made in this case and the decision and the, and the reason I wrote this one was to make sure that I fit within the parameters of that LaFerro versus Cahill. 
And so if you read that, you'll see that that's what it came out. But one of the points I want to make clear is you don't, don't worry about it. If you're not comfortable with figuring out how to include citations, uh, use the language, you know, include it and make your analysis follow IRAC and the Court of Appeals or Superior Court, they'll fill in those citations when they make their review. So I just offer that up if you feel intimidated by that idea that I don't think that's something you need to spend too much time worrying about. On this, this last example, I will fully admit that there's a big chunk of it that probably most people would just consider dicta, meaning it wasn't really critical to my decision. I put it in there because <laughs> if you remember some of these last elections, just how awful the elections and the campaigns have been, this was my small way of kind of pushing back because this started between one candidate of one party and a political operative of another. I knew very early on that this was not going to be the end of the matter. By the time the case was over, there were two very high profile and powerful law firms in the Phoenix area that had jumped in on each side. Um, by the time it's up on review, I don't even know how much the parties themselves were actually involved because this became a much bigger issue for the political parties. And so you don't have to include that. Be careful about using it. It doesn't really fit uh, all the time. My last suggestion on this is, uh, I was told many years ago, I believe it, I struggled to, to really follow it, but this is the piece of advice, and that is there really is no such thing as good writing, there's only good editing. And I try very hard to get people to, re you know, I'll put other eyes on the things that I'll write, but I just, today I went back through and read the, these decisions that I had written several years ago, and I still found typos and still found things that I should have changed and made better. Uh, and that's the hard part when you do your own writing and editing is after a while, your eyes just won't pick up on that. So my suggestion is at a minimum, have a clerk or somebody review it and help you as best you can. I have sent things to other judges and asked them to review it. I certainly am willing to help you in that regard to review things and edit and make suggestions because I ultimately think if you're going to take the time to write, you want to write well, you want to be persuasive, you want to support your, your, the decision that you made, and sometimes getting other eyes on that can be very helpful and I'm certainly willing to help. Along with uh, sometimes the, your your case will divide neatly into findings of fact and conclusions of law. Sometimes it's easier to talk about them both at the same time. So on that, you, you, your your heading could be mixed findings of fact and conclusions of law. But but one of the things um, that we're not supposed to do is to cite to unpublished opinions and. And frequently, if you go into, if you have access to Westlaw or some kind of uh, legal research database, and you'll, you'll type in a phrase you need, and there'll be a, a case that's exactly, you know, explaining your very issue, and you look at it and see that it's an unpublished opinion, so you can't cite to it, um, and you get frustrated, or at least I get frustrated almost immediately. Although while you can't cite to it, you can certainly cut and paste from it. Um, and, <laughs> and I have done that a lot. Uh, you think, wow, this explains the issue really well. I wish I could cite to it, but since I can, I'm just gonna steal the analysis 
thumb and it's going to become mine. You're not writing term papers. Um, no one's going to yell at you if you're plagiarizing something. Um, in fact, when I write up written opinions, I frequently share them uh, with the other judges in, in Maricopa County. And I say, you know, feel free to use some, all or none of this. I don't care. You know, why, why reinvent the wheel? And, and, and I encourage uh, other judges to share their opinions with, with other things as well, especially in areas where there's almost no appellate case law, like residential evictions or, or, or something like that. Um, any discussion of legal principles obviously has to demonstrate that the judge's conclusions based on, hopefully based on logic and reason. Um, I think you need to deal with any arguably uh, contrary authorities or opposing arguments. If, if you've got a motion to suppress and the defense is relying primarily on one case and saying, judge, because of this one ruling, you've got to rule this way. You've got to suppress this evidence um, because the, the blood draw is improper for whatever reason on this DUI case. I think if you take the time to do a written opinion and you don't even discuss that case, you could maybe be subject to criticism. So while it, it's not uh, critical that, you know, you go through and say in state versus Schmedlap, you know, this happened, the defendant relies on this uh, case, the, this case is different than Schmedlap because you don't necessarily have to go through that type of analysis, but I, I think that if, if, if it's obvious that there, there were the one side is relying on maybe one or two cases and you cite only one side's cases, but don't cite the other sides, I think you could be subject to criticism, not commission on judicial conduct criticism, but just criticism because um, frequently all, all we have as, as a judge is our reputation and you don't want to, uh, get a reputation for doing something sort of halfway. Um, on the final conclusion, it, it, it is important to, to actually reach a decision, um, not just write like a really good opinion and then forget to say what, what you decided. If I would state, um, you know, clearly state who won, um, if they won money, say how much money was awarded, if it's not clear, do an accounting of why, you know, they're awarded this much in, you know, for this reason. And then one thing I hadn't thought of before, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation hearing, I was watching that and she said that after she was through writing an opinion, she read it again from the point of view of the person that lost. And I, I just thought that that was a brilliant way to go back and sort of check your work and say, you know, how would I feel if I was on the losing end receiving this thing? Would I read it and go, oh, well, I disagree with it, but I understand where the judge was coming from. Or would I think it was sort of like a, you know, a slap across my face with the back of someone's hand. And, and hopefully none of us are writing to where we, we get that way. I'll, I'll put in, uh, I'll, I'll echo what has been said earlier on proofreading. All of my typos seem to generate real words. 
So <laughs> spell check does no good whatsoever for me. I, I typed a two-page minute entry earlier today um, and asked if it made, I gave it to a clerk to say, does this make sense to you? And she read it and she immediately found uh, two typos. One, I I set the case for a trail date, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'd all rather go hiking, um, but they probably want me to set the case for trial and not a not a trail date. But that's that's how we that's that's a good example of how my uh, I guess actual typing skills tend to generate real real problems. The the one that I have the the one that's up right now the it says in the case that the court concludes the fail that the uh, plaintiff failed to meet a burden of proof. Um, that was a case I wrote up. I knew exactly how I was going to rule at the end of the trial. I didn't need to write it up. Um, and I didn't think she was going to be mad at me. But she proved about 75% of her case. She proved that the landscaping contractor essentially did nothing right. Um, the plants were different. The edging was different. The color of the gravel was wrong. I mean, it, literally everything was wrong. And so when she went home that evening, I'm sure she was thinking, well, I did a good job. I proved everything. Well, she didn't prove damages. Um, the only thing she had on damages was she talked to her neighbor and her neighbor allegedly knew something about landscaping. And that was, he said it would be at least $10,000. Well, even assuming that gets over a hearsay objection, which the self-represented land, landscaper didn't know to object based on hearsay. But even if that's true, that's worthless as a, as, as a damage thing. And I had spoken at the pretrial conference about, you know, the importance of having your evidence together. And if, if you are, are going to ask for something to be repaired, you need to have a repair estimate and things like that. But she just hadn't gotten around to talking to a, another landscaper yet and getting a repair estimate by the time of the trial. Had she done it right before the trial, if she would have had a problem because it hadn't been disclosed. But she'd done nothing. And so I wanted her to know that she had done almost everything right and me ruling against her, which is based on the purity of the law, that she hadn't proven her case, as opposed to, I didn't like her, I didn't believe her, I thought she was lying, something like that. And that's why I took the time to write up this case. It didn't take long. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't complicated. Um, and then I, I researched nominal damages to see if I thought I could award her anything, and I ended up doing that. But that's why... I wrote this one up, um, and again, it, we deal with self-represented litigants whose only uh, interaction with the legal system might be what happens in in our courtroom with their interact in interacting with us. And I just I, I wanted her to know that her her case was seriously considered, and it just didn't work out because. Uh, she was she for whatever reason didn't have all of her evidence together that particular day. 
I don't have a lot of other things or words of wisdom to, to share with anybody. Um, I, I do agree that there's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's only um, if you're one thing that you can do as a justice of the peace for the for those of us that are um, JPs and were elected, if you have a a small newspaper in your jurisdiction, not the Arizona Republic or you know Arizona Daily Star or something like that, but like a more of a neighborhood type newspaper, like in in my case, there's one called the Foothills Focus or the Glendale Star or something like that. You can write a newspaper column, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be um, you know, something as mundane as what to do if the landlord won't fix your air conditioner. And that can be really valuable advice. And it's a good way to do outreach because a lot of legal advice is like medical advice is preventive. It's don't do that. You know, you shouldn't have done that. And once you're in court, it may be too late, but there, there's nothing wrong with reaching out, um, even if it's a blog on social media or, or whatever, to to reach out and, and give sort of preventive or outreach type um, advice through judicial writing. This class focused more on on written opinions. Um, and again, I'll I'll say what we started with: don't feel obligated to do this. Um, you you know Charles is is just as right to say. Um, I don't know if you're in. Did you ever do this really? And that's fine. It's just a matter of style. I, I am structured. I like writing. I like organizing that way. It, it, it's just something that, that works for me. Some people are much better public speakers. They speak really well off the cuff. They can do They can make uh, verbal findings really well. But at least for me, after a, a trial, it's maybe lasted four hours. I have trouble remembering everything, keeping track of everything, and invariably there's an exhibit that I haven't read yet. Um, so I'm, I'm going to want to take that under advisement just so I make sure that I get everything right. Because while the the parties are very familiar with the case, I probably am not. Judge Riggs, do you have any concluding words of wisdom? Well, I don't know if they qualify as words of wisdom, but my last suggestion is keep keep the things that you write uh, save them online save them in an electronic database or even hard copies because quite often the issues that you've resolved and worked on today will come back tomorrow and it just makes it a whole lot easier if you are written just to make something take what you've written and modify it and and do that so you don't have to completely go through the whole process Charles, do you have any final thoughts? I'll uh, open it up to uh, the class. Do any of the participants have any questions or comments? Andrew, you, you, you turned on your microphone. Yes. Uh, only comment is you need to be really careful about what facts and how you state the facts and that they are facts. Because even in that first case, you could have said she was negligent because she didn't make sure this intersection was clear before she continued on her turn. 
and come up with a different decision. So there obviously should have been more facts into it, but we got to be careful with it. All right, anyone else? No, I'll just, uh, that, that made me think of something a couple years ago, and I can't remember who the presenter was. I think he was uh, from Kentucky, but he was uh, out of state, a trial court judge at some judicial conference I was at. And he said he remembered walking up to an appellate judge on a court that had reversed him and said, I, I understand why you reversed me, sir. I read your opinion. I agree with it thoroughly. And had the facts been the way you stated in the trial, I would have reached an open. <laughs> I, I, I would have reached that decision as well, <laughs> which I, I, I thought was pretty funny that he said, you know, that the, the appellate, his opinion was, well, yeah, I would have reached a d different decision as well had the facts been the way the appellate court described it. And, and just just to clarify what, what I said at the beginning, I, I, I am not totally averse to writing. I will write when when it is necessary. Uh, I just uh, you know as Gerald began at the beginning that for pro tems, you generally want to be done by the time you leave, and so it it it, it is more of a challenge. But uh, I certainly have been able to write and and have written when it is necessary and agree with everything you all have said today. Any other comments, questions, concerns? This uh, is probably, uh, well, this is the last class before you have to get your educational requirement uh, by August 1st. So uh, we're, we're gonna cool it for a little while. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think we've got some evictions coming up uh, starting uh, next week. Uh, so we're, we're going to be putting our attention elsewhere. We do have a, a, the part two of our updates class that we will need to do once the Supreme Court has met on the rules. Uh, we do need to reschedule an evidence class. Uh, and if there's anything else that you do want to see on the education side, shoot me an email, shoot Taj an email. I want to thank our presenters today, Judge Williams and Judge Riggs. Thank you both so much. And uh, everyone be, uh, stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day.